So as many of you know, for the last several weeks, we've been in a series on spiritual formation. We've been talking about various practices that we do as a body of Christ to put Christ in the center of our life. So over the last couple of weeks, we've identified different practices that need to be part of our routine as followers of Jesus. So as you might recall, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about developing a rule of life, developing rhythms in your life that help you establish patterns in your life. Because we know if we're going to put Jesus first, we're going to have to be intentional about it. We can't just sit back and expect things to happen. No different than if you expect your finances to grow, you have to have a plan for it. So we talked about developing patterns in your life. And last week we talked about prayer and how prayer needs to be a big part of our Christian walk, not just so we can make our requests to God and say, hey, this is what I want, but part of the reason that we pray is to put ourselves in the presence of God so we can hear God because we know when we're in the presence of God, we receive His transformation. So today I want to talk about another, another spiritual practice that we need to be part of our wheelhouse of things that we do on a consistent basis. But before I introduce and talk about this practice, I want to talk about two characters in the Bible that have a crisis of faith. That these two characters run into an experience where they experience such severe doubt, you're kind of surprised. And I think it's important that we look at these characters and we look at having a doubt of faith because the Bible isn't bringing up these two characters just to give us a description of what it looked like in their life. But I think the Bible is giving us an invitation as well to present our doubt in our crisis of faith to Jesus as well. That this isn't just a description of how people experienced a crisis of faith, but it's a prescription of how do we respond when we might be having a crisis of faith. So the first character that I want to bring up that's having a crisis of faith is in the New Testament, and that's John the Baptist. I don't think anybody expects John the Baptist to have a crisis of faith. After all, this is a man whose birth was announced by an angel. He has a whole chapter in the Bible devoted to his birth. His parents are Zachariah and Elizabeth, two outstanding characters in the New Testament. John the Baptist, when he was an infant inside of his mother's womb, when he got in hearing distance from Mary, the mother of Jesus, when Jesus was in her womb, he leaped in her womb. The scriptures tell us that John the Baptist was nurtured by the Holy Spirit. Scriptures tell us that John was a lover of God. And the scripture tells us that John was respected by people and even kings and rulers. You don't expect a man who has a whole chapter of the Bible about his birth to experience a crisis of faith. But yet he did. We find John in Luke chapter 3, he's out doing the work that Jesus called him to do. He's sharing the good news. He went to Herod the king's son and he rebuked him for practices that he was doing. And as a result, John ends up in jail. And you can imagine he's in jail and he gets discouraged like any person would probably experience. So John calls two of his friends over and he says to his two friends, he says, look, I want you to go to Jesus. I want you to ask Jesus, are you truly the one? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the one that we need to follow? Because right now I'm in prison and I'm experiencing a little bit of discouragement. And I can't blame John the Baptist. You're in jail, you're looking at, you potentially are going to be killed. And so he reaches to his friends and he says, you go ask Jesus if he is truly the one. And what does Jesus do? What is Jesus' reply to his friends? You kind of wonder, is Jesus going to rebuke his friends and say, you know, Hey, you go back to John and tell him to, you know, grow up a little bit. No, what Jesus does, his friends say to Jesus, are you truly the one? Jesus turns to the crowd and starts doing miracles. 
He heals the lame. He heals people that can't hear, can't see. He casts out demons. He does a wide variety of miracles. And then he turns to John's friends and he says, okay, this is what I want you to tell John. In John 7, he says, go back to John. Tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. See, this is a remarkable story of this young man who had everything going for him. You would not expect he would have a crisis of faith, and yet he does. And Jesus reaches out to him with love and compassion and understanding. He doesn't correct him, but he encourages him. It's this beautiful story, and John responds to when his uh, friends go back to him and share the good news. But then there's another character in the Bible, another character that has a crisis of faith. And this is an Old uh, Old Testament character by the name of Elijah. Again, you don't expect Elijah to have a crisis of faith. This man sees the power of God work and display. You would think of all people in the Old Testament, this man would be so confident he would never have a crisis of faith. But yeah, he does. And I find it comforting. The book of James says, Elijah is a man just like us. I think it says that because one minute Elijah's strong and he's confident and God's moving and the very next minute he's like, it's all over, kill me now. I think if we were all honest here and online, I think we would say, we know what that's like. We know what it's like to have a day of God is great, God's victorious, and the next day think, like John the Baptist is like, is this even real? Is this even, is he even, this is the right path to follow. I love the story of Elijah. Elijah is a prophet that's called to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he doesn't have an easy job to do. As you know, prophets in the Old Testament, their job was to tell the people what they're doing wrong. So at that point, the nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms. On the one hand, you have the south kingdom, which is divided into two countries, or two tribes. They often refer to that as Judah. And then you have the ten tribes are part of the northern kingdom, and we usually refer to that as just Israel. Both these sides are pretty rebellious against God, but the northern kingdom, if you're trying to win a prize for who's in the most trouble, the northern kingdom's way more in trouble. So Elijah's job is to go to the, 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 go to the king and go to the people and tell them, hey, you're in trouble now. So God says to Elijah, he says, I want you to go to the northern kingdom and I want you to tell them that because of the consequence, the result of their sinful pattern, it's not going to rain for three years. So Elijah gets up the courage and the guts. He stands before the king and stands before the people and says, it's not going to rain, people. This is a consequence of your sin. So God in his grace, right after he delivers that message, he says to Elijah, okay, get out of here as fast as you can because nobody's going to be happy with him. So Elijah gives the word of the Lord. He has to run, go hide by the brook called Kirith Brook. He has to hide there for a couple years. But the nice thing is God feeds him with ravens. God takes, I mean, that'd be kind of a cool thing that God is actually going to supply your needs and have birds fly in food here and there. So Elijah is in Kirith Brook for a couple of years, spending time alone while the nation of Israel is reaping the consequences of no rain. And he's by this brook called the Kirith Brook. And sooner or later, this brook dries up. So Elijah's in there going, wait a minute, I don't have any water. So God leads Elijah to this another village, and he finds this widow woman, and some of you know the story. She's running out of food. She has a sick son, and so God does a miraculous provision of food with this widow, but also her son's dying, and Elijah raises him from the dead. So Elijah is a man that says miracles after miracles. And one day God said to him, okay, now it's time to go back to the Israelites. Three and a half years have gone by, so it's time to let it rain again. 
So he sends Elijah to go back to the people of Israel. He stands up in front of the king of Israel and all the people. And I love what he says in 1 Kings 18, verse 21. Elijah stood in front of them and he said, how much longer will you waver? Hobbling between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But then the people were silent. I love that simple message of Elijah. Make up your mind. Either serve God with passion or serve Baal with passion. Don't sit in this little middle area zone, but decide for yourself what you're going to do. And what do the people do? They're silent. No opinion. So next what Elijah is going to do is he's going to perform a miracle. Probably one of the greatest miracles in the entire, oh, probably the top 10 miracles in the entire Bible. Elijah says to the people, okay, if you have so much confidence in Baal, this is what I want you to do. Make an altar to him. Put some wood on top of it. Carve up a bull that you're going to sacrifice. And then call on Baal and say, Baal, start that thing on fire. Oh, the people are all excited. They built an altar, put wood on top, cut up a bull, put it on there. They pray to Baal, nothing happens. Pray to Baal, nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. So Elijah says, okay, my turn. Elijah builds an altar to the Lord, puts wood on top of it, cuts up a bull, puts a bunch of bull pieces on top of it, and then on top of that, he takes three large basins of water and pours it over everything. It is so wet that even the water is in a puddle around there. Elijah calls out to God and says, start it on fire, and boof, immediately the altar's on fire. A wonderful display of God's power, and all the false prophets of Baal go running off as fast as they can. Elijah chases them down and kills them all. And then Elijah prays for rain, and sooner or later, here this big rainstorm comes into town. Here, Elijah is a man after God's heart. He has seen miracles, seen God do things that nobody else probably would expect or experience. And then in 1 Kings 19, verse 1, it tells us what happens. It says, when Ahab got home, King Ahab got home, he told Jezebel, his wife, everything that Elijah has done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed just you, if I have not killed you. Jezebel says, I'm going to hunt you down and I'm going to kill you. And the next sentence is a little surprising. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah. He left his servant there. He went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. You don't expect that. You don't expect that from a man who's seen the power of God displayed in signs and wonders and miracles of seeing dead people raised. You don't expect that at all. But yet he wants to die. He asks God, just take me, kill me. I don't want to live any longer. He's discouraged to the point that he wants death. And once again, we see a God of compassion. We see a God that comes, rescues people when you're having a crisis of faith. Again, I bring this up because the Bible is not, this is not a description of people that had crisis of faith. It's a prescription for what we do when we experience crisis of faith. Because God knows full well that each and every one of us is going to experience a crisis of faith. 
If John the Baptist would experience a crisis, if Elijah was experiencing a crisis, then I think I'm probably going to experience one along the way as well. And the Bible gives us permission, and it shows us what we can expect from Jesus, that we can expect compassion. So in 1 Kings 19, verse 5 to 18, it tells us how God responded to Elijah. It said, and then Elijah lay down. He slept under a broom tree. While he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some baked bread on a hot stone in a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and he lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead of you will be too much for you. So he got up, he ate, and he drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down their altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And the voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down their altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Then the Lord told them, Go back to the way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. See, there's a lot that we can learn from Elijah. There's a lot that we can learn from his experience about being honest with God. The first thing that Elijah did was he was honest with his doubt. He was honest with this crisis of faith. He simply went before God and said, I've had enough. I can't, I can't handle it anymore. I just want to die. And I think it's a beautiful because after he was honest with God and could get that off his chest and tell God exactly what he felt, he fell asleep. I think sometimes we carry things that can disrupt our sleep. Not all sleep is caused by that. But sometimes... It's anxiety that you're carrying that God wants to carry for you can actually keep you up at night. Not all the time, but some of the time it can. And after Elijah was able to do that, give that burden over to God, he was finally able to rest. And so while he's resting, what does God do? He shows him compassion. He nourishes him while he's sleeping, and he wakes him up and says, look, here's some bread, here's some water. Gave him exactly what he needed. Elijah didn't have to go out and find the water, find the bread. God actually brought it to him. And then God said, you need strength because now you need to travel to Mount Sinai. And that was a beautiful invitation from God to bring him to Mount Sinai because Mount Sinai is representation of you go to the place where the presence of God is going to be. That's what God wanted to do to Elijah. He wanted to bring him into his presence. And that's so much of what we do with spiritual practices. What we do with spiritual formation, they bring us into the presence of God. That's why we focus our life around Jesus, because it brings us into the presence of God, and it does exactly what God did to Elijah at Mount Sinai. You're able to hear God's voice. 
And what does God say to him? He says, Elijah, why are you here? What brought you here? And finally, Elijah is able to answer. He's able to give a complete answer to God. And he says to God, you know what? Um, I've been serving you. And things aren't turning out at all like I expected. I expected my life to be a little different. I didn't expect I'd be hunted down. I didn't expect that people would be trying to kill me. God, I've been trying to serve you and do everything that you've told me to do. And look where I ended up. He's able to tell God, really, what is behind the reason he says I want to die? He's able to tell him, this is the reason why. Because I feel like, you know what, like, um, like, I'm not getting what I really deserve. And I think that's beautiful what God does to Elijah. He gives him so much transformation that Elijah can get in touch with the why behind what he's experiencing. He can get really honest with himself and say, this is what's bothering me. He shares his feelings. And then God speaks to Elijah again. He says, go stand out outside of the mountain. And he stands out, and as I've read, there's a windstorm, there's, a, there's earthquake, there's fire, all these big manifestations from God. But God's not any in those. But then God speaks to Elijah with a small little voice, like a gentle whisper. And that's all Elijah needed to hear. And what does this text tell us? That he put his head inside of his coat, which is a sign of full surrender to God. That when he heard the voice of God, he was able to completely surrender. And then God said to him again, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah repeated again. I'm here because I'm discouraged. I'm here because I'm fearful of my life. I'm here because it doesn't seem things aren't working out the way I intended them to be. And then, Eli- and then God responds to Elijah again, and he says, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. This is what you don't expect God to say. You don't expect God to say, now go back to the way you came. Because everything in Elijah is going to be like, no way am I going to go back there. That's where I got in a lot of trouble. That's where that lady is who wants to kill me. Why would I go back there? I'm going to go forward. I'm going to ignore what's in my background. I want to go forward. But see, sometimes you need to go backwards if you're going to go forward. Sometimes you need to go backward to settle things in your past if you want to go forward. So today I'm introducing our third uh, practice that we're talking about, and that is dealing with your past. That there's times in your life that you do need to go backwards, as God said to Elijah, and deal with some things in your background. Deal with some things that are influencing you today. Some people will say, why do I need to deal with my back? That's in the past. That's history. I don't need to dig up old things in the past. Let that lie. But I think as most of us know, sometimes your past has as much influence over you today as something that happened just today. Sometimes God has to deal with our past so we deal with what's actually influencing us today. We have to go back and we have to deal with things that influence us in a negative way. And I think it's good to know that to deal with your past is a way to honor God. Because to deal with your past is saying, God, I don't just need you today and tomorrow, but I also need you in my yesterday. I need you in my past. Because there's some things that happened in my past that I need to surrender over you and put that under Jesus' authority and power. 
To deal with your past is saying to Jesus, I want every single part of my life under your lordship because there's some things in my past that are influencing me today and not in a good way. See, to deal with your past is really a way to put Jesus first in your life. See, the goal of this whole series, the whole of the goal of this whole discipleship series and spiritual formation is, eliminate, is to eliminate anything that would influence your relationship with God in not such a good way. So to deal with your past is a way to honor God. See, a big part of our discipleship to Jesus, a big part of our spiritual formation is all a relearning process. I think we all know that... Um, one of the principles of following Jesus is that we examine any sinful patterns in our life and we learn how to relearn how to live in the way God intended for us. I think the starting point for all of us is we're all born into a family. We're all born into a community. We're all born into a culture. And we all know that has tremendous influence over us. How our parents acted, how our siblings acted, how our general family acted has incredible influence over us. What kind of culture we were raised in influences on how we behave today. And so it's interesting that when we get saved and we find salvation in Jesus Christ, the Bible uses the word adoption. We've been adopted into a new family. God becomes our father. Other believers become brothers and sisters. Everything changes for us. It's like we go from one family structure into a new family structure. And if we're going to live in this new family structure, often referred to as the kingdom of God, we need to learn how do you live in this kingdom. And part of living in the kingdom of God is to unlearn some things that you learned in your other family structures that may not be working towards your advantage. And one of the things that can harm us the most is generational sins or generational patterns of sin. You know, probably from the um, Bible, the Ten Commandments talks about generational sins. So today, as we're talking about dealing with your past, Today, I want to talk about specifically generational sins and iniquities that impact us today. And then next week and the following week, I'll talk about other areas, a way of dealing with your past. So today, we're talking about generational sins. And I want to give you a, a great little definition from Pete Scazzaro, a pastor in New York City. It says, generational sins are the brokenness in our family tree that produces patterns of dysfunction and unhealthy behavior, such as addiction, abuse, anger and fighting, unforgiveness and bitterness, infidelity and divorce, legalism and control, deception and manipulation, and many, many more. I think one of the best illustrations of a generational sin pattern comes from the family of Abraham. A lot of you know who Abraham is in the Old Testament. Abraham is the father of covenants, the guy God goes to and says, you're going to carry my covenant. And look what happens. In Genesis 12, Abraham lies to Pharaoh about his wife and says, oh, that's my sister. Again, in Genesis 20, only eight chapters later, he hasn't learned his lesson, he lies to Abimelech about his wife being a sister. And then you have in Genesis 26, his son Isaac lies that his wife Rebekah is his sister. See this little pattern? I mean, how many people lie and say their wife's their sister? Does in this family tree. And then what happens to Isaac's son? His son Jacob schemes him and lies to him about his birthright so he can steal from Esau. And then Jacob's sons lie about Joseph being killed by animals. You see Jacob's, you know, Jacob and Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this little family tree. Huge problem lying. Not just little teeny lies, like the big ones. They have a generational pattern of lying, and sometimes it's important for us to identify those patterns and behaviors because sometimes they are just 
they seem to be genetically passed down. I don't know how they're passed down spiritually, but it almost seems like they're genetically passed down. So it's good for us to talk about what could be a generational pattern. And I find it very interesting that Elijah, at the point where he wants to die, what does he say? He's under the broom tree. He says, I want to die. He says, for I am no different from my family. I'm no different from my family. Why would he bring that up in his big crisis of faith? Because I think he's looking back on his family line. He's saying, look, everybody in my family kind of ended up like this. He's noticing a pattern in his own family. Even Elijah in his point of crisis is looking at his generational line saying, I didn't turn out how I expected. How I'm turning out is exactly how everybody else in my family did. I thought my life would be different. And he's looking back on great remorse and sadness because he's thinking, I haven't changed. I'm like everybody else in my family. So what does the Bible really have to say about generational sins? I think you've heard the word. You've heard it that it surrounds uh, the, the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 34, before God introduces the Ten Commandments, he says, or Moses says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. So we hear that introduction to the, the Ten Commandments. We're like, you know, that's the God I like. Slow, not going to punish me, merciful, forgiving, loving. That's the God we all like. It's the God we, that, that, that we think of a lot. But then in the rest of verse 7, it says, But God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation. I think we read that and we're like, well, wait a minute. What happened to this loving and this kind and compassionate God that's slow to anger and abounding in mercy and love and kindness? Now he's going to punish me for the sins my parents committed and my grandparents committed and my great-grandparents committed? That just doesn't seem fair. But there it is, Genesis 34, verse 7. So the question is, do we really think that God does punish us for sins that other people commit? See, I don't think that's what this verse is saying. That would be very harsh if I would have to pay the penalty for somebody else's sins. I think I like how um, the Gospel Project, how they introduce a new term that I think helps us understand this better. They call this concept generational accountability. I think that's a helpful term. See, God's not saying that he's going to judge innocent people for sins that other people have committed that you're going to pay the consequences Instead, this verse is a warning from God. God's warning each generation. He says to people, you will be held accountable if you commit the same things, same sins, that the generations before you committed. This is a warning from God. This is the compassion of God saying, look, you can't use it as an excuse, saying, look, this is the way my father did it. This is the way my mom did it. Everybody in my family acts this way. That's why I act this way. God's saying, don't use that excuse for me. If you're going to repeat the same sins that your parents did, you're going to have to pay the consequences. This chapter is the compassion of God again to give us your warning, saying, look, it's easy to repeat generational sins. It's easy to do the same things that your parents did or your grandparents did or your aunts and uncles or the culture you're raising. It's easy to do that. And God is saying here, don't fall into that trap. 
Don't fall into the trap of thinking you've got a, a get-out-of-jail card pass because everybody else did it. He's warning people that you're going to have the same propensity to do the same things as the sins as other people in your family. He's warning you. You see a sin pattern in your family, there's a good chance you're going to do that too. It's an invitation to identify generational sins in your family line and say, you know what? I need to stop that. I need to ask God for deliverance from that pattern of sin so I don't end up like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and we keep doing the same things and we keep them passed down in the generations. When God brings up generational sins, he's doing it because he's a God of compassion. He's doing it because he doesn't want to punish people. He wants to give people freedom. He wants people to get rescued from sins and any patterns in their life. God's not going to hold people accountable for something that they didn't do wrong. But he's saying if you enter into that pattern, you will have to be responsible for that. And I think it's an invitation to remind us are we aware of generational patterns in our family? Have we identified them? I think sometimes we casually identify them, but have we actually stepped back and took the inventory to say, have these things impacted me? I like how one pastor, friends of my, a pastor friend of mine says, the sins of the family will often visit the succeeding generation. The brokenness and unhealthy patterns of those who have come before us will visit. They'll knock on the door of our own heart. We are free to welcome these or reject them. We can, by the grace and power of God, break the cycle. We're not bound to such generational sins and patterns. Nor should we use the generational concept to embrace our brokenness or blame it on the family. So I want to close this message today to talk about how do you, how, what do you do if you're identifying generational patterns in your life? How do you get free from them or how do you identify them? I think the number one, I put a list inside of your uh, bulletin notes for you. And if you're watching online and you want this list, it is, uh, if you're watching Facebook Live, it's in the notes or you can go to our website and on the cover there is, the, you can download this. I think the first thing that you need to do is ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Are there any generational patterns in your family line? And I think it's important to remember, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Sometimes it's easier to identify them in other people before yourself. And I say, caution, we're trying to point out somebody else's generational sins. Sometimes that doesn't go over too well. But ask God for your own. Say, God, show me, are there any generational patterns I don't even notice? Sometimes it's so, I mean, it's, it's interesting. The older I get, the more things I recognize I do exactly like my dad. It's kind of a weird thing. I'm not talking about sinful things, just, just normal patterns, even the way I talk or the way I sit. I'm like, it's exactly how my dad would do it. That's not bad. But I think it's just even as I get older, I'm identifying more. So the first thing is ask the Holy Spirit. Show me, are there any patterns in my life? And number two, ask God to show you these patterns of dysfunction and take time to write down these impressions. Write them down. What is God saying to you? I think sometimes we ask God a question and we expect immediate answer. I love the story of Elijah. What does Elijah do? He goes under the broom tree. God takes care of him, feeds him, and then he makes him walk 40 days and nights to Mount Sinai, and then he speaks to him. I think sometimes in our culture we think, I asked God a question, he didn't answer me in 30 seconds, he's not going to talk to me. Sometimes he's going to do it over a 40-day period. So get out your notebook and get serious. 
I say, God, I, I'm really serious that you're showing me these. And then ask other people. See how brave you really are. Because I know the one person in this room who can identify generational patterns way better than I can. She happens to be in the front row. <laughs> what a coincidence. But I mean, ask other people. Do you see things I do that maybe in generational, they're not so good? And then you got to get honest. You got to really take a list with this. You got to be serious. You can't just like whimsically do this. And then you got to say, God, do you want to reject these patterns that maybe you are doing and repent for doing them? Repent for maybe if you have a judgment against family members who did these things. Maybe you need to forgive some people in your family line who taught you how to do bad behavior that you picked up on yourself. It's easy to get bitter against somebody in your family line who's taught you a bad behavior. And now as an adult, you're realizing, man, I got myself in a big mess because this person taught me how to do some poor behavior. You need to repent for yourself and maybe forgive the person that taught you how to do it. And so the big part of generational sins is just communicating with God and repenting and renouncing and asking God to forgive you. And then God give you, ask God to give you the ability to resist. Resist the temptation to keep doing these things over and over again because sometimes they seem so natural. I think that's where the enemy sneaks in. He tries to tempt you over and over again because he doesn't want to see you set free. And finally, stay in community. You got to stay in community for people to help you and pray for you, to encourage you. But I think the biggest part of this is do what Elijah did. And it starts by being honest with God. And I think Elijah shows us so clearly it's sometimes our most discouraging days we're the most honest with God. Like John the Baptist, like Elijah, are you taking time to go underneath that broom tree and sit with God and tell him what's really bothering you? What's really eating at you? What really you look at and you think, this is unfair. How would I turn out this way? And it's through that process of honesty with God that God will speak to you. And he will nourish you. He will give you the supply and the sustenance you need to get you into his presence so he can help you understand the real why behind the things that you're doing. I love this message because I love how God responds to John the Baptist and Elijah. He responds to him with compassion, compassion with understanding. I think there's such a, a, there is so much grief in our world right now. There is so much anger and hostility. I think a lot of us thought, you know, we're going to go through COVID or get through COVID and we can take our mask off and we can go out to eat and everything's going to be fine. This hasn't bounced back. Sure, we can go out to eat. Sure, we're not wearing masks everywhere, most of us. Things haven't bounced back. People in our world have dealt with huge trauma over the last two years. Discouragement, frustration, people have died. We have our Mercy Lament project in our parking lot to remind us of the loss that has happened over the last two years. People have experienced incredible trauma, and I think we thought we could just bounce back naturally. I think all of us would agree we look around us. You see discouragement, you see hopelessness, you see frustration. It's everywhere. And as the body of Christ, we need to lead by example. We need to follow the example of John the Baptist and Elijah, and we need to go under the broom tree and spend time with God and say, this is what's bothering me. This is what's hurting me. This is where my frustrations are. And be honest. 
I love the fact that when John the Baptist was honest with Jesus, what did Jesus do? He displayed his power and did miracles. He did signs and wonders. Jesus wants to, to take away our doubts. He wants to show us his power. Exact, I think there's a, a script in our head that thinks, if I complain to Jesus, he's going to get mad at me. No. You tell Jesus how you feel, he says, I'm going to show you his power like you did to John the Baptist. Same thing he did with Elijah. He said, Elijah, stand outside of this mountain. He showed him fire. He showed him an earthquake. He showed him a hurricane. He showed him his power. Because he wants to convince us. He knows we doubt. He knows we've been discouraged. He wants to convince us. And like Elijah, sometimes we need to go back. Say, where was that point of discouragement that happened to me? What happened to me that caused me to be so discouraged? For Elijah, it was the fact that everybody's out to kill him. So I want to encourage you. Find time under the broom tree this week. Find time under the broom tree this week to tell God exactly what's going on in your life. Maybe you're just happy. Maybe everything's great. Under the broom tree, you can go. But maybe there is a point of frustration and discouragement or bitterness or anxiety or fear or sadness. Go under that broom tree. And know when you go under that broom tree that God's going to respond with compassion. Not with judgment. Not with a rebuke, not with anger, but with compassion. And he's going to show you his power. It might be a sign or a wonder or a miracle like John the Baptist saw, or it might be that gentle whisper that Elijah heard on the side of the mountain. But either way, there's enough biblical precedence right here in these texts to say God is going to respond to each and every one of us with compassion if we come to him with honesty. So God, I thank you for today and I thank you for this message. I thank you, Lord, for what you show us in the life of John the Baptist and the life of Elijah, that we can come before you with full knowledge and transparency and vulnerability and tell you exactly how we're feeling. And you're going to come to us with compassion. God, I pray for each person listening to me today, Lord, that they would find time under the broom tree this week to be honest with you about what's going on in their life. It might be something happy or it might be something sad, but God, would you draw each of us under the broom tree to have an honest encounter with you this week? And I thank you, Lord, that you are the God who wants to show your power, where it be a miracle or a gentle whisper.